morning, church. Thank you for being here this morning. Well, this morning we wrap up our series on the word metaneo. And this morning's going to be an illustrative sermon. In fact, I plan to present you two different versions of the gospel. One that you will be very familiar with and one that uh, you might not be so familiar with, but we've certainly been talking about it in this series, Metaneo. This does not originate with me. I first heard this from a theologian named Brad Jerzak. Brad, uh, I believe, got it from an Anglican bishop located in Colorado Springs. And then it's been circulated. I know Brian Zan that I've referred to recommended his book to you, the book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God has also made this same presentation. So it is available elsewhere, but I'm going to make it to you because it's made such an impression, first of all, on me as a believer and my walk with Christ, and I believe it's a beautiful summary to all of the things that we've been talking about here in our series entitled Metaneo. I'm going to share with you two different versions this morning of the gospel. The first one is more modern, Western, very judicial, we might say even legal. The second one is more ancient. I actually believe it's more biblical. It's more patristic, which means going back to the early church fathers. Some would call it restorative. Let me be quick to say that the gospel is itself perfect. It needs no changes, it needs no updates. It is the story of Jesus. The announcement of what he accomplished, what he did when he came to the earth. The gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The perfect, beautiful gospel. It's not an atonement theory. It's not the four spiritual laws. It's not five steps and it's not ten hoops. In this first presentation of the gospel, the one that I'm sure you're going to be more familiar with, notice that there will be a very legal theme to it. It's all about sin being law-breaking and that because we're breaking the law, there's punishment for that and it all seems to take place in a courtroom. Jesus is the advocate. We are the sinner. God is the judge. In the second one that you'll see this morning, it's much more therapeutic. Sin is far worse than a, a legal guilt. It's a disease. And you know you cannot punish a disease out of anybody. It was said of Jesus that he is the great physician. I believe what sin needs is the great physician. To heal it. So we'll start with the first gospel. In the beginning, God created Adam. This will represent man and humankind, Adam, and this will represent God. God created Adam to have fellowship, communion with him, to be in his perfect likeness, to image God. He was the image bearer of God. Unfortunately, though, 
man sins. And in his sin, he turns his back from God. He turns away from God. When man turns, God turns from man. And man becomes sinful. And God separates himself from man. When man turns from God, God turns from man. Man becomes, not only does he do sinful things, man becomes sinful by his very DNA. And although God comes back into man's life through various covenants, we read about them throughout the Old Testament, trying to get in front, trying to restore fellowship with man, man always breaks those covenants and finds himself turning again away from God. And when man turns from God, God then turns from man because man, of course, has broken the covenant. Time and time again, God attempts to come back through a covenant and present himself to man. But all of man's efforts are basically religious Attempts to please God, to appease God, to satisfy God, but he always winds up breaking God's commands and covenant, and so God turns his back on man. The result is, is that God sends judgments, sicknesses, plagues, and punishment upon humankind. But then God sends his son, Jesus, Jesus lives a perfect life. The sinless Son of God. He becomes man. He lives as man should have lived. He lives a perfect life in perfect communion with God, experiencing all that God intended for man. But shock, unbelievable, God puts Jesus to death. Jesus becomes sin with our sin. And he experiences the full penalty of sin, including the full wrath of God. And the darkness of Good Friday sets in. God, who is holy, cannot look upon sin and so he turns his back even on Jesus God sends his son into death but because Jesus is sinless God raises Jesus from the dead to be our savior and to once again get in front of man as a substitute for what man never could be now, if we as sinners believe this message, if we turn from our sin, if we confess our sin, then Christ, then at that point, Christ becomes our substitutionary sacrifice. Then we're spared. We're spared the wrath of God. We're spared the judgment of God. All the things that man deserved, we are spared because of what Christ did for us. Now, if we don't believe, however, 
and we turn our back, then God will turn his back. We'll remain in sin. God's wrath will remain on us and we'll be alienated from God just as it was back in the garden. And eventually, if we die this way, we will spend eternity in eternal punishment in a place called hell. Sound familiar? Sound like the gospel? It certainly was the gospel that I have been taught, that I learned in Sunday school, and that I was raised with. There's some flaws that I'd like to point out with that version of the gospel and some tweaks that it needs, keeping in mind that the gospel is itself perfect. It is a beautiful story of what Christ came to do. However, I'd point out these three, three things about that first version of the gospel. First of all, it makes salvation more a result of my work. If I turn towards God, he will turn towards me. If I accept Christ, then he will forgive me and pardon me. But if I don't believe the gospel and I turn my back on him, God will turn his back on me. So who's in charge of salvation? Clearly I am. I have to believe the gospel. I have to receive Jesus. I have to repent. I have to confess my sin. And if I do, God will turn towards me. The second flaw that I see in that first presentation of the gospel is that it pits God against people. What do I mean by that? One theologian said it this way, God's primary disposition towards man is enmity, anger, and wrath. Imagine a theologian saying that. Now that's fascinating that any theologian would say that because John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How is it that God's primary disposition towards man is anger and wrath and enmity when God so loved the world that he gave his only son? The other reason that that version of the gospel has become popular and that people believe that God's disposition is against man it's because of a verse in Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse 13. It begins this way. Your eyes, O Lord, are too pure to look upon sin. And so, God cannot look upon my sinfulness or my life. Your eyes, Lord, can't even look upon sin. Interesting. If we read the rest of the verse, it goes something like this. Lord, your eyes are holy and cannot look upon sin, so why do you? (laughs) 
This idea that God is pitted against man also comes from a classical passage of scripture found in Isaiah chapter 59, starting in verse two. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Sweetheart, might I have my phone there, please? I decided I would go ahead and share a couple of the other verses from that chapter. So verse 2, once again, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Certainly seems to be this going on. Your sins have hidden his face from you. However, when we keep reading in that chapter, we notice this. I'll start reading in verse 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked, and he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His righteousness sustained him. And by the time you get down to verse 21, it says this. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is in you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips. So what begins, as often happens in these prophetic scriptures, with the declaration of judgment, God says, all right, since you are turned against me and there is no one that does righteousness, I will bring salvation for you. I will put my spirit upon you and it will dwell with you forever. There's another popular passage that lends itself to this whole idea of um, how God receives or interprets man or his disposition towards man, let's put it that way. In fact, Luther, the great Luther of the, Re the Reformation, was misquoted as saying that you are all like snow-covered dung. That's God's disposition to you. You are all snow-covered dung. You're still poo, but now you have this covering of snow where God is going to allow you to continue to relate to him. A more modern theologian, still living today, said that Jesus is your asbestos suit to protect you from the white-hot wrath of God. Interesting. Now, the third thing that I think we need a little tweaking on of that first gospel is the fact that it pits God against Christ. There really isn't a chair for that here since, oh, that's right. God is Christ. Christ is God. So how is God pit against Christ? 
Now, the very foundation of Christianity is that Jesus is God. The very foundation of, the, of Christianity is that the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit are one. They are pure. They are in perfect communion. There is never a time where they are not like each other. There is never a time where the Trinity is not in fellowship with itself. The perfect, wonderful Trinity. So where do we get this idea that God is pitted against Jesus? Well, it comes from Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you remember those words? Jesus uttered them while hanging on the cross. Jesus prophetically was speaking from Psalm 22 about his death. Now, here's the thing, though. You've got to keep reading the rest of the chapter because it's the whole psalm that's prophetic. It wasn't just verse 1. That psalm goes on to describe how that the nails were put in Jesus' hands, they were put into his feet, a spear was thrust into his side. The whole beautiful prophetic psalm is that. And so, by the time we get down in psalm to verse 22, Listen to this. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. And yet we take verse 1. And because Jesus uttered only that verse on the cross, we don't keep reading. So what we really have is a conversation like this between Jesus while he's hanging on the cross and the Father, perfect Trinity, perfect God. God in Father, God in Son. God, why have you left me? I haven't, Son. I'm right here with you. God, do you see these individuals who have humanity, all of humanity, that has turned their back on you? I know. I love them. And what you're doing is going to redeem them. So that by the time we get to the end of the, my God, my God, I feel all alone. My son, I have not turned my back on you, even though it feels that way right now. Isn't that beautiful? So where was God on Good Friday? What was God doing? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God wasn't up there somewhere turning his back on Christ. God was in Christ Reconciling. In fact, Zechariah chapter 12 says that they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Prophetically, God is speaking and saying, there's coming a day where they're going to look on me, the Christ, who they are piercing. How beautiful. Version number two. Shall we go back at it? It starts very much the same as the uh, first one that we did, okay? Now, I remind you that this one is more ancient. It's more patristic. 
And again, I find it much more biblical. In the beginning, God created man. Man was created to have communion with God and to image God perfectly. They were in perfect fellowship. But man sins and he turns from God. But in this version, what we find is that that turning from God causes him to be subject to, f- to futility and death. So, whereas the great problem with the first one is legal guilt and the issue of punishment, in the second telling of the gospel, it's not about legal guilt and punishment. It's about how the humanity has now become subject to death. This is the humanity that God loves, that he created. And so what does God do? God goes with him out of the garden. Now you remember God sent him out of the garden, right? First, Adam tried to clothe himself with fig leaves. God walks into the garden, Adam, what are you wearing? (laughs) you're going to get cold. (laughs) I think we can improve on that. Oh, and just so this death condition that you are in, this futility now that you've opened your life to, doesn't reign for eternity, I'm going to put you out of the garden so that you can't eat of the tree of life and stay in this eternal condition. And now God goes out of the garden with him. And because God loves humanity and doesn't want them to be subject to death, God sends his son to become a human being. Jesus comes that he might heal the condition of man. Not an issue of legal sin and personal sin, although the great physician takes care of that as well. Sin, I remind you, is much bigger than personal sins. It's a condition. It's a disease. It's subjected to all of humanity to futility and death. So Jesus comes, lives as a perfect man, and says, I am going to take care of death. Do you remember that when Jesus went into the grave, do you remember what he took from Hades and hell? The keys to what? Personal sin? No, death. So, we have the woman at the well. Jesus approaches her. Now, this is a woman who is living with her sixth. She's been through husband one, husband two, husband three, husband four, husband five, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Suggesting that maybe she's in adultery with somebody else's husband. God comes, sits right down in front of her, says, woman, what you need is a drink (laughs) of living water that will never run dry. God comes and sits down with an adulteress, gets right in front of her. She doesn't turn towards him. He gets rather in front of her. 
Then we have Zacchaeus, you know, the little guy. He was of short stature, the Bible says. In fact, so short that in the crowds, he couldn't see over the heads and see this Jesus that everybody was talking about. Now, another thing you need to know about Zacchaeus is that he was a tax collector. He was colluding. Hmm, interesting word in today's marketplace. He was colluding with the Romans to not only collect tax, but he was pocketing a lot of it himself. He was completely ostracized by his family, his friends, Jewish tradition. He was on the outs. He certainly was not seeking God by any of the Jewish traditions. But he is interested in this Jesus that he's been hearing about. So he climbs up into a tree. <laughs> Jesus comes walking by. God stops right where Zacchaeus is and says, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house and have lunch. Jesus is sitting down with a sinner. Remember now, God's eyes are too holy to even look upon sin, which means he wouldn't even be able to look, about, uh, look upon any of you or me. He certainly wouldn't be able to look upon somebody like a tax collector. And he gets right in front of Zacchaeus, goes to his house and eats. Do you know what that does? Back then in that culture, to go to somebody's house and eat was to verify, to authorize, to throw in with them and say, they're my good friend. I believe in them. We have the woman who's caught in adultery. She's brought and she's thrown in front of Jesus. Jesus, this woman, was caught in adultery. Where was the man? Jesus kneels down right in front of her, writes in the dirt. Then he stands up and he says, let he who is among you without sin cast the first stone. All the stones drop to the ground and the crowd begins to leave. Jesus turns to the woman and says, where are your accusers? Remember that legal court? Jesus is advocate. You and I are the fallen. God's the judge. <laughs> Jesus says, no, it's not about that. I want to deal with the futility that you've been thrust into. I want to deal with the disease of sin. Where are your accusers? They all left. No one, Lord. Neither do I accuse you. Now, most of your translations record that he then says to the woman, go and sin no more. And those who favor that first telling of the gospel jump on that and all of evangel uh, evangelicalism says, see there, God will forgive your sin, but then you are responsible to live a holy life or God's going to turn his back on you. I was just talking to my friend and Hebrew scholar, about that very passage this past week. And he said, Jeff, did you know that that addition 
or that rest of the part of that verse is not actually even there. It was added by an archbishop in 300 AD. Jesus never said it. He just said, neither do I accuse you. Go. I was listening to another Hebrew scholar who was talking about that passage of scripture and the literal rendering of it. That even if it is there, it doesn't say go and sin no more. It says this, go, death to sin, no more. <laughs> Jesus came. He took sin. He took death. He canceled it and all of its futility that we were subject to. In another situation we see in the Gospels, there's a man who lives by himself. He's possessed by a legion of demons. He lives on the opposite side of the sea, somewhat on an island where nobody can get to him. All the children are warned about him. He cuts himself. He cries out in the middle of, of night with pain. He's possessed. Bible says that he runs around naked. Jesus gets in a boat, says, take me to the other side. To be with a man possessed of demons, naked, cutting himself. And Jesus gets right in front of him. Talks to him sets him free, delivers him from futility and death, and puts him into his right mind. Mm. How about the paralytic? We have a paralytic who's living over here. He's heard about Jesus, but he can't get to him. So he asks a couple of his friends if they'll take him to this meeting that Jesus is at. He's unable to walk, so they lift him up and they carry him to the meeting on a pallet. There's such a crowd. There's people standing outside the door. The inside's full. All the seats are taken. There's a crowd outside just trying to listen. They're looking in the windows. So his friends take him up on top of the roof, cut a hole in the roof. Imagine that. Plaster now is falling down on Jesus' head. And he looks up. And they're letting him down. And they let him down right in front of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm too holy. I can't look at you, right? <laughs> First words out of Jesus' mouth. Watch this. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus hasn't even been to the cross yet. Then he says to him, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. And he begins to walk. So that you might know that the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins. Let me just remove the sin issue off of the table. That you're not a paralytic because of your sin or because God is judging you. So be forgiven. You're forgiven of your sin. Now, take up your bed and walk. How beautiful is that? You see, it's called incarnation, where Jesus literally comes into the earth, into our lives, 
and brings forgiveness. But of course, because of man's pride and violence and sin, it puts our precious Lord to death in the grave. While hanging on the cross, God looks up, or Jesus looks up at the Father, says, Father, watch this, while hanging on the cross, dying there with the penalty, our sin, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For Jesus, it's not a legal issue deserving punishment. It's the disease of sin and futility that has creeped into all of humanity. And all of humanity now is putting the Son to death. And so, the Bible tells us that we went into that grave. We were put into the grave with Christ. So humanity enters the grave through dead religion and works and all that they've done. And you know what God does? God enters the grave with them. God goes down into the pit of hell so that when he was crucified, we were co-crucified. When he was buried, we were co-buried. When he rose from the dead, we were co-raised with him. So love is greater than the grave. Love cancels death. And because of the humility of Christ going into the grave, both man and Jesus are raised and are now, in per uh, now perfect. I see two critical differences between these two that I want you to remember. Number one, God is never pitted against Jesus Christ. And number two, remember, all of Christianity rests on this. God is immutable, which means he changes not. God is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Christ didn't come to change the Father, to placate the Father, he didn't come to satisfy the Father. He came to reveal the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus comes to set us free from futility and death and reveal what the Father's really like, a forgiving, good, good Father. As Chris Tomlin wrote and sang. I have a quote from Brian Zand, one of my favorite authors now, he's come to be, again, the man who wrote the book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. I'd like Jeff to put it up here for you. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus, but we haven't always known what God is like. Now we do. And this one. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. It's not the Father who needs to be reconciled to the world. 
because the father never changed he never changes he never changed we've been his kid all along humanity was his creation subjected to futility and death let me ask you something are you running have you turned your back on God you know what God's gonna chase you you say but I'm enjoying my sin I like my lifestyle God says I still love you regardless and I have an even better life well you don't know what I'm really like how I really think what I've done God I don't care that's all been taken care of in Christ I love you just as you are can't I at least have 20 minutes to myself in my own sin God says no you belong to me you say well what if somebody ultimately never accepts this message and they die and they go into the grave <laughs> Bible says even if your soul is in shoal there I am with you you cannot hide so that he feels all in all when the Bible says all glory to God he feels all in all he's taken the keys of death and hell if necessary, he'll even go down into the darkest places and dungeons with you while you are on your journey. Thanks be unto God for our precious Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's anybody today you've been running and now you're tired. You know what? He loves you perfectly. And you don't have to beg him. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to pray a bunch of prayers or go to the right church. All you need to do is accept and acknowledge what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being here. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for transforming who we became because of the futility and death that entered through Adam. Jesus, <laughs> what a beautiful gospel, the good news that you came. You lived on this earth. You became man that we might become like God. And now, because of what you did through your incarnation, your death, your burial, and your resurrection, we have eternal life. We accept you, Jesus. We accept you into our heart. We accept you into our whole life. We believe we are forgiven. And we confess, Jesus, you are Lord. I think I have just enough time. I have about a
oh, I don't know, I think it's about three and a half minutes. It's a clip. It's taken from Brad Jerzak's presentation of this. He gives a testimony about somebody in his church that he met who shows up a drug addict and what transpires that speaks so beautifully to this wonderful gospel. I wonder if we could lower our lights and you're welcome just to keep courting that and uh, let's be sure that's in the background and that we want to be sure that our live stream people, audience, can see this as well. Are we ready? Could we go ahead? Let's show that testimony. Here is a woman who came to Freshwind Christian Fellowship, a church that we planted. A lot of disabled folks, a lot of people with disabilities. She was an addict. She hadn't been able to stay sober for 100 days since the time she was 13 or 14 years old. She would hide vodka all over her house. Even through her pregnancy, she, she could not get clean at all. So she's on the run. She actually was sort of trapped in a, in, in a drug house and couldn't get out. And what did God do? He went and got her out of that drug house and he gave her a good husband and then he brought her to our church and then she became one of our intercessors and she became very good at doing inner healing ministries with people. And, and, then, and then she fell off the wagon and she took about $10,000 of her husband's money, or their money, and disappeared into the streets. And she was living at times in a cardboard box, at times in a pickup truck, and she was seriously losing her mind. She developed, uh, through needle use, developed um, um, hepatitis. And then, and then uh, what does God do? Through her now ex-husband. The ex-husband contacts her and he says, um, I want you and your boyfriend to come live with me and I'm going to put you both through detox. And for two weeks he puts them through detox, then he puts them in a recovery house. Uh, each uh, male recovery house, female recovery house, and she's in, she's in there and she has a talk with Jesus. And she says, I'm just so sorry. I threw away my husband, I threw away my children, I threw away my health, I threw away my faith. And I don't even want you to do something for me. I just want you to know I'm so, so sorry. And what does God do? He picks up, in, she has a vision of him picking up her needle kit, tying off his arm and injecting her heroin into his arm. And she says, no, you can't do that. He's too holy, righteous, and just to do that, right? And he says, actually, isn't this what I've done for every man, woman, and child on this planet? I have taken the curse and the sin and the, and the pain of this world into myself and I've swallowed it in love. This is the cross. In that moment, her, her, she was cured. Now we don't normally t talk about cure with addictions, but I'm telling you, she hasn't had a craving since in 20 years, 15 years, 15 years. And, uh, oh, it gets crazier. She goes to have her first interferon treatment and they cancel it because they can't find any hepatitis in her body. And then, and then she, she, uh, she calls her ex-husband and says, I want to get married. Would you walk me down the aisle? This is Hosea stuff now. And he does it.
after a year together with her new husband, the ex-husband says, I, you need more time with the kids. I want to invite you and your new husband to come and live in my basement suite, and we'll raise the kids together. Eventually, he sold his half of the house to them. She went back and got her MA in counseling, and today she's a family, family therapist for Jesus, who's just changing the world. And her new husband is, is a landscaper who only hires addicts to walk them through recovery. This is what our God can do. Boy, if that doesn't bring tears to your eyes. What a beautiful gospel. What a beautiful gospel. I'm good just sitting. Just, yeah. See, it removes all the work from it. Removes all the effort. Removes all the religion. The things that you've heard during this series are the foundation of the Christian faith as we are walking it out here, loving without judgment. God's a God of love, not of judgment and wrath. And that Jesus took care of even death, wiping it out. We build from there. Everything else, everything else we do, everything else we know, everything else we plan and program is all because of this beautiful gospel. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful for the beautiful gospel?